I'm Brian Scordato, and this is the Idea to Start a Podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. We accelerate ideas into real companies through the Tacklebox membership, and we think through startup strategy every Wednesday on the Idea to Start Up Podcast. You're here because you're thinking about an idea, or you're ready to launch something, or you already launched something and you're running full steam ahead. We're here to help with the counterintuitive stuff. On to it. Today, we're going to talk about two things you can do at the very start, like the day you decide to really go after a startup idea, to dramatically increase the odds that it works. This moment might be soon after you had the idea. Maybe you had an idea last week, and it feels like the culmination of everything you've been doing in your whole life, and you can't eat or sleep or breathe without thinking about it, and you've just got to do it. Maybe that idea is a direct-to-consumer vegan soup brand that makes soup from ground-up cashews, and you're going to call it Nuts to Soup. Great name, if it is. Or maybe the moment comes after years of casual tinkering, of telling your friends the idea so many times they can give your pitch, but that's about as far as it's gone. Maybe something happened, and now you've decided it's time to actually commit to it, because after all these years, no one else has, so it might as well be you. This is for that moment, too. People approach startups like pros or like amateurs. We'll start with the amateurs because that's most people. People act like amateurs for one of two reasons. First, they subconsciously don't actually want to start a startup. They don't want to shake up their life. Starting a startup likely means eventually running your own thing if it actually works, putting your name on the door, making something that people might hate, or even worse, not care about enough to hate. The idea part is fun. The reality might not seem all that fun, so people toy around with an idea with no intention of ever going any further. Again, either consciously or subconsciously. They might say that if something they do really takes off, they'll pursue it, but that's realistically never going to happen. And that's great. There are plenty of weekend golfers that aren't trying to drop their handicap by 15 strokes or make the pro tour. Most people aren't willing to change in the way a startup would require, and again, that's fine. But this podcast isn't all that helpful for those people. The second type of hopeful entrepreneur acts like an amateur accidentally. They've got no idea they're acting like an amateur because they've never done this before. They don't realize how counterintuitive the early stuff is or how important it is to spend their precious time doing certain things and avoiding others. Prioritization is hard. That is what we're going to talk about today. We've had over 500 hopeful entrepreneurs go through our program since 2015, and we've learned over that time what it looks like to go at your idea like a pro. We've tried to help our founders do that, and the ones that do tend to be successful. Not that all of their businesses work, but they end up getting enough data points to understand if their idea has legs or not. They get to make an informed go or no-go decision. Alternatively, not a single entrepreneur who's treated their idea like an amateur has somehow ended up with a business that works. But for some reason, people still think that can happen. It's obvious to us that no one accidentally ends up on the PGA Tour, but people still think you can stumble haphazardly into a successful business. That's just as silly. So let's talk about going after your idea like a pro. To go after an idea like a pro, you need to hold two big truths in your head simultaneously and anchor your decisions and actions to them. First, you don't matter. And second, you're the only thing that matters. These seem at odds, but they aren't. And by the end of the episode, it'll be crystal clear what you've got to do. So let's do it. And we'll start by talking about an interior designer. It's too early for the jazz. We're only like two minutes in. Patience. 
We bought a house recently, and for anyone that's moved from an 800-square-foot New York City apartment to a normal-sized home, you realize pretty quickly that a house looks empty when all you have is a couch, a bed, and a coffee table. Instead of buying a bunch of stuff in a haphazard way, we decided to have an interior designer take a look and tell us what to do. What do I know about buying a couch? The first person we had over is a friend of ours who is kind of an interior designer. It is not her full-time job, but she's got amazing taste. Her house is beautiful, a big open floor plan with the type of stuff normal people would never think about buying. Everyone who goes in there notices and talks about it and immediately says, you should be an interior designer. She's even helped some of our friends buy furniture. So we had her over for lunch. She walked in, looked around for a minute or two, and then said that we had to knock down all of our walls. I'm sorry, I said. Yeah, she replied. You need a big open floor plan. The house will never flow without that. And you got to get rid of this chimney. The house is an old home that a German couple built in the 1940s as a small one-bedroom cottage. Over the years, other owners have tacked rooms on to support a family of four. So there's a beautiful fireplace that's kind of just in the middle of the room when you walk in. I love it. Or I thought I did. Then she looked at the wallpaper, which I also thought I liked, and said, got to get rid of all that. It's got to be white. Paint everything white. White is calming. Her house is all white and it's pretty calming. So maybe. Then she said, once you've knocked down all the walls and painted the place white, I'll give you my furniture guy. You can get the stuff I've got. It's going to look great. After that, we had lunch. I have never been so insecure looking around at all the walls I never noticed before. Stupid walls. Was I thinking buying a house with all these dumb walls? Luckily, my wife isn't so easily swayed. After our friend left, she said, I like the walls and we love the fireplace. Let's see what a professional interior designer says. A few weeks later, walls still intact, we decided to reach out to an interior designer who'd worked with a family member in the past. She was expensive, but we went for it. She knocked on the door the next day at 5 p.m. sharp. We opened it and she introduced herself, but then she said she was going to go back outside. Um, okay. Then she walked back in, then back out, then in again, over and over and over. Then she started with the questions. Okay, so you walk in. What's the first thing you do? Do you flip the lights on here? Where do you put your coat? Do you take your shoes off? Do you normally have the dog with you? What do you do with the baby? She repeated this exercise, but now she was doing it with specific scenarios. Okay, you've got groceries. She held her purse like it was a sack of groceries. Where are we going? Where do we put them? Okay, you've got guests. She made us put on our coats and walk outside and then walk back in. Okay, she said, I take your coats and I put them where? Where do we go first? What's the first thing you do? We worked through the whole downstairs like that with her asking question after question after question. Every couple of minutes, she'd stop, hold up her finger for us to be silent and look around. Then she'd pull out her recorder and babble into it. They love morning coffee, so maybe scones three or five. I'm thinking farmer kitchen three or four with modified oval on farmer table seven or 11, nesting five for the living room, but 28 inch max. This whole time, she was whipping out her measuring tape like an outlaw in the Wild West. She'd flick her wrist and unspool 10 feet of measuring tape at a time. It could have been an Olympic sport. She'd mutter the measurements of everything into the recorder. More measurements than I could imagine. Random heights, distances from the edges of tables, heights of table corners, noting that there would be toddlers, so no hard edges. When she got to the fireplace, she gasped. Oh, gorgeous fireplace. Incredible. I see why you bought the place. We're going to highlight this. The questions continued. What's the wind down look like at the end of the day? Are you going to host holidays? How many kids are you planning on having? 
At last, she did her final walkthrough, visualizing, miming, tape measure shooting left and right. Got it, she said. Then she gushed. I just love this house. I'm so happy you were able to get it. It's perfect. I'll send you my ideas in the morning. Will we need to tear down any walls or anything? I asked hesitantly. Oh, good God, no, she said. What? Why would you do that? No, I'll send you a proposal in the morning. By 6.15, she was gone. At 8 a.m., we had a full floor plan, down to the inch, for everything she suggested we buy in an email. It was in story form, explaining choices based on how we lived. We're doing exactly what she told us to do, down to the smallest sconce, whatever the hell that is. She understood us, so of course she'll do what's best for us. The first and most important difference between pros and amateurs is that amateurs think about themselves. They think that the answer lies in their brain somewhere, that they are the thing that matters here. They come up with an idea, decide it's the right one, and then go see who they can push it on. Pros know they don't matter. The customer matters. The customer lives their life in a certain way, and it is their job to fit seamlessly into it, to understand the leap their customer is trying to make, where they are now, and where they'd like to be. Then, to build a product that facilitates that leap. But pros know they can't dream of doing that without first understanding points one and two. They need to know the story the customer tells themselves better than anyone else to build something that will help their customers make that leap. It is so much harder to learn from the customer and to react to how they live. That is why most people don't do it. And that is why most people stay amateurs. But that's where the opportunity is. Your advantage will be skewed towards deeper understanding of fewer customers rather than some mass insight that a generic product can provide that everyone else just missed. Everyone is always going to do mass and generic better than you. Anyone can walk into every house they see and say, knock down these walls and paint it white and buy this furniture. Your opportunity is to actually understand people, which means you need to take the time to do it. But at the same time, that doesn't mean that you need to do everything. There's a balance. And that is the second thing that pros do. They have a systems mindset from way earlier than you'd think they would. Wherever you are right now, that's when pros start implementing systems that multiply and amplify themselves. Systems that allow them to spend the lion's share of their time collecting the dots from customers that they'll then connect to make great, unique products. Systems that allow them to scale while they do that. So let's get to that. After, a little smooth jazz for real this time. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job and want to test out the former before you leave the latter, come and work with us. Apply at gettacklebox.com. Over 400 startups have tested and built ideas through our program, and those businesses are now collectively worth over a billion dollars. Our program helps you prioritize and execute, and our members and me and the team keep you accountable and give you feedback along the way. Come build with us at gettacklebox.com. Back to it. Automate something this week. Now that we've learned that you as an entrepreneur don't matter, it's time to learn that you as the entrepreneur are the only thing that matters. I still can't tell if this premise is helpful or dumb. Maybe both. Let's see. The idea behind the interior designer story was probably familiar to you if you listen to this podcast. You've heard Paul Graham and whoever else talk about how early on you've got to do things that don't scale. Solve your customers' problems manually to learn the ins and outs before hard coding anything that can scale. Stay flexible to avoid the sunk cost of building a product no one wants and then spending all of your time hoping to find someone who will take it off your hands. But I think it sometimes pulls people away from another critical early entrepreneurial skill, systems thinking. Amateurs want to do everything. 
pros recognize what matters and what doesn't, and then build a system accordingly. You've probably heard about systems too, but you likely haven't built one. It's an interesting blocker that people have, and I think it stems from a core counterintuitive insight. You need to optimize your life for time, not for money. Time is more important than money. Even though it probably seems like money is more scarce because it's easier to measure and you likely don't have a ton of it, and you're used to taking time for granted and not taking money for granted. But that is your whole bet if you're starting a startup. That when you give yourself time to solve a specific problem, you can solve it better than anyone else. You can help your customers make a leap that matters. And if the problem is a good problem and the leap is a good leap, solving it will bring you more money or more efficient money than you could otherwise make. You are investing resources in the short term to give yourself the chance at 100x those resources in the long term. And the thing that will differentiate you isn't the stuff everyone can do. It's connecting the dots you collect by interacting with customers. Back to our interior designer. I had to ask her some questions about her business because I couldn't not. I'm not sure I've ever had a better service experience in my life. I needed to know how the guts of it worked, so I called her. Well, she said, the most important thing is how the customer wants to live, what they do, if they like having people over, and if so, how many. What do they repeatedly do every day? What makes them happy? There is no shortcut for this, she said. She can't do it virtually. Her business basically didn't work in the pandemic, and she can't outsource it. Her background was in architecture and then designing stores for high-end retailers, and now this. That allows her to see things a certain way. So she's built systems around everything else. She has a virtual assistant who listens to all of her recordings and then translates them into a floor plan. They've built out five different looks. One of them is the farmhouse I mentioned earlier. And they have a bunch of associated pieces of furniture that all go together within those looks. The VA puts together the proposal with the pieces mentioned on the recording and also sends some other suggestions to the designer based on sizing. This VA also reaches out to the furniture retailers to get referral pricing. A few hours after the meeting, the designer said, I'll get an email with two versions of proposals and a few other ideas from my VA. If I like one, I schedule it to go out to the client the next morning. It takes me maybe five minutes. So do you spend a lot of time sourcing unique furniture then? I asked. Not at all, she said. The people I work with aren't furniture geeks. If they were, they wouldn't need me. Two things really matter. Cohesion, that all the pieces look good together, which is what non-pros screw up all the time because they buy a couch without thinking of a sconce. I still don't know what the hell that is, by the way, that they'll buy in three years. And the second thing they screw up is sizing. They buy a couch that's too big, for example, which makes walkways too small, which throws the whole thing off. People stink at cohesion and sizing. So I need to know how they live and I need exact measurements. Oh, she jumped in. And one more thing. I always have one piece that I call the salesman. I was intrigued. Go on. We've got a few standout pieces that people talk about. Highlights. They're the most expensive thing by far, but people notice them. It could be a coffee table. It's actually usually a coffee table. And what I'll do is subsidize the piece. If it's way out of my client's budget, I might put one or even $2,000 of my own money into it because I know, especially if they host people frequently, that it'll get talked about and they'll mention me, and I'll get five or 10 or 20 more jobs from it. That is my marketing cost. It's my salesman. We have about 15 pieces like that, and my VA will suggest a few to me in the proposal draft, and I'll pick one. It eats into our profit for sure, but I don't think of it that way. It relieves me of figuring out how to get customers in any other way. It just takes marketing completely off my plate. Brilliant. All I do, she said, is meet with clients, proofread the proposal, and hit send. That is my entire job. 
The rest, creating proposals, relationships with vendors, sourcing new furniture, incoming email, client requests, scheduling, all of that, that is my VA. I pay her 30 bucks an hour. She works about 25 hours a week and she's based in Minnesota. She's built out a bunch of processes, so most of the stuff doesn't take her more than a few minutes either. Systems thinking. What matters is her interactions with customers, her uniqueness, her ability to understand the flow that'll meet a customer's needs, and everything else is outsourced. She optimizes for her time down to marketing. When I asked if she ever did Instagram ads or anything like that, she shuddered. How the heck would I do that? It's so much easier for me to just subsidize statement pieces. I pay a few thousand dollars, but it takes less than a minute of my time and it gets me customers. So how do you do this? How do you find the equivalence of cohesion in space, the thing your customers really need, but really can't do without you? And your equivalent of the piece of furniture the designer called the salesman, the thing people will talk about and share. The answer is you take advantage of systems thinking so that you can spend as much time as possible with customers learning these things. The goal is to find what matters for you to do and automate, outsource, or build systems around the rest. A business then is just scaling those systems. The earlier you start, the better. This is very much a dip your toe in to start sort of thing. I'd imagine that most of you have never automated or outsourced or built anything like this before in your life. So the idea isn't to build a complete system on day one. It's to try something. I recommend that something being a thing you've put off, something that's emotionally tough for you for some reason, but isn't actually core to the business. One of those might be something like cold emails to get customer interviews. Let's say you're doing that direct-to-consumer vegan soup idea, nuts to soup, and want to speak with other people who have built direct-to-consumer food brands. Maybe you go to Fiverr, search for people that will scrape the internet for you, and pay someone 10 or 15 or 25 bucks an hour to do it. Have them find 250 direct-to-consumer food companies that have raised money in the past 24 months, or whatever metric for success you want and have them pull the founder's LinkedIn into Excel, have them pull the email into Excel, and have them pull any podcast interviews or articles about them. Then breeze through, find someone interesting and dig in, write them a personalized email. Maybe write out a personalized sentence for 25 people you'd like to meet, then get that person on Fiverr to send the 25 emails. Another option might be to build something internal, see what you do repetitively, and then try to automate it. Maybe you've got a landing page up and a couple of people sign up a day. After they sign up, you look them up, figure out who they are, and then send them an email. Let me introduce you to Zapier, or Zapier. I still don't know how to say it, but it's Z-A-P-I-E-R.com. This is a tool that lets you build out little programs very easily with no code. It integrates with everything. So maybe you use Squarespace for your landing page. You can sync Zapier slash Zapier in Squarespace and then write some rules. When someone signs up on Squarespace, Zapier finds their LinkedIn and sends you an email with a profile on them. Maybe Zapier also sends them a welcome email, then follows up two days later with a second email and pings you on Slack if they click on any of the links. The goal is to see what you do each day multiple times and automate it. I've talked about this before, but cataloging what you do each day with a few scores, one being enjoyment to dread scale, one being how critical it is that you personally do this versus how easily someone else could do it, to how much impact this task would have or not will give you a window into what you can automate. Automate stuff you don't really enjoy, stuff that doesn't need to be done by you, stuff that doesn't have a big impact, repetitive stuff. This is one of those once you break the dam, your world changes sort of things. Outsource something to Fiverr and build a zap and you'll start seeing everything differently. Everything can be automated except the things that can't and those are the things that matter, the customer facing stuff. 
Creativity is just connecting dots. Spend your time collecting dots from customers, understanding how they live, how they feel, what they want, what a leap would look like for them. Then connect dots to deliver something to them with all the commodity work done by someone that's not you. Optimize for time, not for money, because that time is spent getting your real differentiator, insight, perspective. Our interior designer was a pro. I've recommended her five times already, and I'll continue to shout her name from the rooftops. She knew that she didn't matter. We, the customer, did. She also knew that she was the only thing that mattered, and she optimized the business for that. Automate something this week so that you can spend more time watching your customer solve the problem you're going to solve for them. Build a zap, whatever. Even if it's not for your business. Let's say you want to build a 25-minute daily workout routine. Have someone on Fiverr source 105-minute workouts and then piece them together into a morning workout that gets sent to you every morning. Or build that out yourself in Zapier. It'll change everything. You'll start seeing opportunity everywhere. Tell me if you do it. And definitely tell me if you make nuts to soup. If you can't tell, I did this at lunchtime and I'm starving and a little cashew-based butternut squash soup would really hit the spot. And if you're interested in us helping you act like a pro or going through our content that'll walk you through all of this, head to gettacklebox.com and apply. We'll get back to you within 72 hours and we can be working on your startup idea the right way soon. Have a great week.